Hello and welcome to Abe Papam, episode 182, Blessed Gregory X. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So today's Pope was born Teodaldo Visconti, the son of Oberto Visconti, the mayor of Piacenza. He was born in 1210 in Piacenza in northern Italy, and we know very little about his early life, save that he was known for being very humble and deeply faithful. He studied in Piacenza and entered the church and was ordained to the diaconate and served as a canon of the Basilica of St. Antoninus in Piacenza. He came to international attention through the influence of Cardinal James Pecker. Pecoraria, who was also from Piacenza and who first met Teodaldo in 1236. Soon after that, Teodaldo joined Cardinal Pecoraria's household and began to serve and travel with the Cardinal on his missions for Pope Gregory IX. Pope Gregory sent Cardinal Pecoraria to France and to Germany to try and find someone to replace Frederick II as Holy Roman Emperor, something the emperor himself didn't really like. And so Cardinal Pecoraria and Teodaldo had to sneak out of Piacenza dressed as pilgrims and make their way on their mission. Now, during this time, it seems like the Cardinal got Teodaldo appointed the Archdeacon of Liege in Belgium as a promotion of sorts. But it's not evident how much time Teodaldo actually spent in Liege. And this is something that we'll see more and more going on, that people have jobs elsewhere that just give them a title. Gregory IX called a council in Rome in 1240 to try and deal with Frederick II's situation. And Cardinal Pecoraria and Teodaldo started back to Italy. But when they reached the shore, Teodaldo got pretty sick and had to stay behind. And it was a blessing because, if you remember from past episodes, Frederick's navy captured the ship that Cardinal Pecoraria and another cardinal were on and held the two for ransom for years. When Cardinal Pecoraria was finally released, Teodaldo was present and went with him to Rome in 1243, where the cardinal finally died. Now, at this point, Teodaldo seems to have wanted to humbly get to work in Liege, and that was perhaps engaged in more study. But people kept wanting to promote him. It was suggested that he be made the bishop of Piacenza, but he refused. And when he passed through Lyon on his way to Paris to study, the bishop there was forcing him to stay and help him to organize the first ecumenical council in Lyon, which he did incredibly well. And that elevated him in the esteem of the pope and the cardinals and the bishop's presence at the council. After the council, Teodaldo finally got to work in Liege as archdeacon, which involved a great amount of organization and pastoral care. He spent a couple of years, 1248 through 1251, of this time in Paris, studying at the university, where he met St. Thomas Aquinas. And they returned to Liege to continue his work. And then from about 1252 to 1266, he was mainly found in Liege. But then in 1266, he was forced to leave. The bishop of Liege was named Henri de Gaudier, and he was a harsh taskmaster and did not follow his promise of celibacy. One day, the family of a girl that the bishop had assaulted and violated attacked the bishop. And rather than let them kill him, the deacon shielded the bishop physically with his own body. But once the family members had left, Teodaldo reproached the bishop for his sinful life and unrepentant heart. And the bishop responded by beating Teodaldo, who had just saved him from being killed, and gave Teodaldo a hernia, which he never healed and, and had the rest of his life. So Teodaldo had to leave Liege. If his bishop has just beaten him and given him a hernia, it's probably a good reason to leave. And he had to return to Paris. And there he made friends with St. Louis IX. And in 1265, he was so zealous for the cause of the crusade that Louis was about to undertake that he took the cross himself. But before he could do that, the Pope asked him to go on a mission to England with Cardinal Ottobono Fieschi 
because of his reputation for prudence and holiness. He was liked by both the King of England and of France, and he helped to make peace between them and between King Henry III in England and his nobles. Also on the trip was Benedetto Cayetani, another Italian cleric. Now, what the three clerics on this trip had in common is that they all would be popes someday. Audubono we will talk about in two episodes, episode 184, when he became Pope Adrian V, and Benedetto in a while, episode 190, when he became Pope Boniface VIII. When Tidaldo returned to France, he joined the crusade underway and headed with Prince Edward of England, whom he had made friends with on his diplomatic mission to Acre. St. Louis went to Tunis to begin his portion of the crusade, but this move was a failure and it led to St. Louis' death in 1270. Now, when he was in Acre, Tedaldo met with two adventurers from the east. They were Venetian brothers who had traveled east and met the great Mongol ruler Kublai Khan. Kublai Khan had found the brothers and one of the brothers' son, whom you, whose name you certainly know, the great Marco Polo, to be intelligent and useful and had sent him on a diplomatic emissary to the Pope. When the Polos reached Acre, they discovered, however, that the Pope was dead and met instead with the Archdeacon Teodaldo in 1270, who said they would just have to wait till a Pope is elected. Now, you may wonder why we haven't yet talked about the papal election since Pope Clement IV died in Viterbo in 1268. And the reason why is that right now in the story, we're in the middle of the longest period without a Pope in the history of the papacy. The Cardinals meeting in Viterbo could not come to a decision. And they were divided between the French cardinals, mostly selected by Pope Urban IV, and the Italian cardinals. And for years, the papal election dragged on. It got so bad that the people of Viterbo were so fed up with the cardinals that they locked them in the palace until they came to a conclusion. Three of the 20 cardinals died during that time period, and one resigned his rights as cardinal because of old age, and I imagine because he was being fed up with being locked in this palace. And the citizens of Viterbo were fed up too, so much so that they literally tore the roof off the place where the cardinals were locked up, partially according to a couple of commentators to facilitate the descent of the Holy Spirit, quote-unquote, but really so that they would be forced to make a decision. This didn't work either, and it wasn't until some more outside political pressure from France forced the cardinals uh, to, to act that they finally created a committee of six to find a compromise candidate that the election was completed. And the candidate they chose was not a cardinal, not a bishop, not even a priest. It was the Archdeacon Teodaldo, who was still in Acre. Now, news reached Acre in 1271 that Teodaldo had been elected pope. And the Polo brothers, who had just set off to return to the east, hearing the news, rushed back to Acre to meet with the pope-elect and to complete their mission for the Khan. Teodaldo sent two Dominican priests with the Polo brothers and the young Marco Polo back to Kublai Khan with his blessing. Teodaldo took the name Gregory X and set sail immediately for Italy. He landed in southern Italy on January 1st, 1272, and he was escorted by Charles of Anjou, the king of Sicily, to Viterbo, where the cardinals greeted him. Now remember, while Pope Gregory at this time had been elected, he was not yet ordained a priest, much less a bishop. So that process had to begin, and he was ordained a priest and then a bishop in Viterbo. But rather than remain in Viterbo to be crowned pope, he left for Rome and was officially installed in Rome in March of 1272. On March 31st, after his election was announced to the world, he called for a new ecumenical council to be held, both to help facilitate a new crusade to free the Holy Land, to help the church uh, in reform efforts, and to work for a union between the Orthodox and the West. The council would meet in May of 1274, but the Pope had not yet figured out what city to meet in. He immediately sent letters to the Byzantine Emperor and to the Patriarch of Constantinople to invite them to the council. 
Now we have to pause a little bit here for an acknowledgement which is important. It's in the Pope papacy of Pope Gregory X that we have the first written documentation that the Pope dressed in white with a red cape. A contemporary liturgical theologian wrote that the Pope's garment consisted of the following. The Supreme Pontiff always appeared wearing a red mount mantle from the outside, but underneath he is dressed in a bright white garment. For whiteness symbolizes innocence, and the red on the outside symbolizes charity and compassion. That is to say, to show that he is always ready to lay down his life for his sheep. Because indeed the Pope represents the person of the one who, for our sake, stained his own garments red. Now, this is still how the Pope dresses for today. You can see lots of pictures of JP2 and Pope Benedict in white with the red covering. And Pope Francis doesn't usually wear the red, but his white cassock still comes from this time period. Now, this is contrary to the commonly held belief that the Pope wears white because Pope Pius V decided to keep his Dominican habit when he was elected Pope several centuries from now. And that's clearly not true. Now, back to Pope Gregory. After being elected... And to help with the deadlock of the College of Cardinals, Pope Gregory created five new cardinals, the most important being, of course, St. Bonaventure, the great Franciscan scholastic and head of the Franciscan order. He spent the next year or so trying to bring some peace to northern Italy. The factional fights between the Guelphs, which was the papal party, and the Ghibellines, which was the imperial party, were still going on. And the way to bring peace was, in his mind, to help bring about the election of a new emperor. If you remember, we haven't had one since Frederick II to help organize the church and promote good clergy and bishops and personally bridge that gap between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Lyon was determined to be the site of the ecumenical council, so Gregory began to move north through Italy. In Florence, he worked hard to try and bring about that peace between the factions of Guelphs and Ghibellines, which he succeeded at, but the peace was broken after only a couple of days after it was signed. It was clear that Charles of Anjou, who was the head of the Guelph side, had no desire for true peace. But then again, neither did the Ghibellines. So then the Pope moved north through Italy, trying to bring peace in similar situations in Bologna and Milan, before finally arriving in Lyon in southern France. Before leaving for the council, Gregory had tried to sway the election of the next Holy Roman Emperor in favor of King Philip III of France, who was perhaps the most powerful monarch in Europe at the time. But his growing concern over the conduct of Philip's uncle, Charles of Anjou, changed his mind. The king of Spain was also contender, but in the end, neither of them was elected, but instead a little-known Duke Rudolf of Habsburg, who had significant territory in Austria and southern Germany. He was crowned king of Germany, and Pope Gregory worked hard behind the scenes to make sure his throne in Germany was secured, though he wouldn't officially be crowned Holy Roman Emperor. But by now, in 1274, the Second Council of Lyon had assembled, and it would be a big affair. The greatest theologians of the world had been called to attend, though St. Thomas Aquinas died on the way to the council and was unable to participate. St. Bonaventure, though, was there, and as were over 500 bishops from around Europe and from the East. And one of the goals of this council, as I mentioned earlier, was the end of the Great Schism with the Orthodox. And to that end, Pope Gregory had sent letters to the Byzantine Emperor Michael VIII to help ask him to bring him there to reunite the churches. And he pledged to do so, and he sent representatives to the council along with Eastern bishops. And on top of all that, a delegation of 13 to 16 Mongol representatives were sent by the Khan to negotiate with the Christian powers against the Muslim powers. Now, the council began with three days of prayer and fasting, and then a solemn beginning on May 7, 1274. The first couple of sessions of the council focused on preparations for the new crusade, imposing a tax on all Christians to help fund the crusade, and decreeing harsh penalties for pirates who might prevent crusaders from reaching their destination. There were some sessions devoted to the reform of the clergy, but the two biggest ticket items from this council were the new decrees on the election of a pope 
and the union with the Orthodox. The period of vacancy in the papacy before Gregory's election was the longest in papal history, both up to this point and since. And in order to prevent something like that from happening again, the council decreed a new procedure for the election of the pope. And so the council, for the first time in history, mandated a conclave. Now, the word conclave just means with keys. And what Pope Gregory decreed was that officially the cardinals had to be sequestered and locked up until a decision was made about who would be pope. This would both be for their freedom from outside influences and to try and limit stalling tactics and delays. The bull ubi periculum stated that the cardinals would have to live in common with no interior walls between them and that if they didn't come to a decision within three days they would only be given one meal and then if they didn't come to a decision in eight days it got worse they would only be able to have bread and water now the next several papacies will see a bouncing back and forth between these regulations and the old status quo but we will see that this document from the second council of Lyon is really was the foundation of how the conclave runs to this day Now, the other major accomplishment during this council was the signing of a reunion with the Orthodox Christians in the East. This was a longer-term project, which was coming to fruition at this particular moment. The hearts of the popes had been turned towards the East more with the failure of the Latin Rite Empire in Constantinople and the return of the Byzantines, as well as because of the fact that a couple of popes now have spent time in the East. The Byzantines on their part, were hemmed in by Muslim forces and were in need of support from the West. And so the emperor, Michael VIII, sought a reunion which could help strengthen his geopolitical situation. Now, on top of that, there was an even more pressing issue because Charles of Anjou, the king of Sicily, was setting his own sights on the Byzantine emperor. And he had made inroads in Albania and Greece, and so he was looking for more territory on his own. So already in the 1260s, Michael VIII had sent legates to the Pope in a very conciliatory tone to try and work together to bring about this union. It would be helpful in protecting him from Charles Anjou. It would be helpful in protecting him against the Muslim invaders and would help to build these ties with the West. Subsequent popes had tried, likewise sent legates to try and work out the differences between the two churches. And there were substantial differences between the two sides, most notably surrounding the filioque. Now, you may remember from a long time ago that the word filioque was added to the creed in the Western Church, and that this addition was seen to be problematic, if not heretical, by the Eastern Church. One, who can add words to the creed without a general council, and there hadn't been one. And two, the word means that the Holy Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son. And this, some Byzantine theologians questioned and said was potentially heretical theology. The dominating narrative about these reunion temps that was that they were mainly politically driven and driven primarily by the dangerous situation the Byzantines found themselves in. And the narrative continues that since the Byzantines were desperate, the papacy made them acquiesce to all the demands of the Western Church. And while some of that narrative is true, it is not the whole truth. There were genuine attempts to bridge the theological gaps on both sides. Pope Gregory commissioned several of the religious orders to do studies on the question. St. Thomas's work on the Greeks was an earlier attempt at this. And some of those studies very much showed that the Greek church had good points. Humbert, the head of the Dominicans, wrote an incredible report, which said that it really was the West's fault that the filioque was inserted improperly, even though it's not heretical. And he made the following recommendation, quote, Christ came down from heaven in order to make both one, Jews and Gentiles, and therefore his vicar ought not to refuse. If it is necessary to travel to Greece, if there is hope that in doing so he might be able to unite the Greeks and the Latins, he is the father not only of the latter, but of the former as well, although they are less devoted sons. 
In the East, too, there was a good faith attempt at union, and the emperor and many of the bishops who were able to come to a point where the union would be possible. So the delegates were sent by the East to the Second Council of Lyon. Now, unfortunately, they arrived fairly late, and there were only a few of them. They agreed, however, to the decree of the council, especially on papal primacy in the filioque, the two sticking points. And on the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul, June 29th, a mass of reunion was held. The gospel was read in Greek, and the creed was said in Greek with the filioque added in, which the Greek delegates recited three times. The union was brought about, but it was shaky. The majority of the Eastern clergy and the faithful rejected it almost immediately. Nevertheless, Pope Gregory tried hard to intervene on behalf of the Byzantines, especially by trying to get Charles of Anjou to come to peace terms with the Greeks. Gregory had also decreed that the Greeks should not be required to add the filioque to their creed, and they should keep all their liturgies as they celebrated them already. But as I already mentioned, the union was not going to last. In 1277, a large portion of the Byzantine clergy met in a synod and proclaimed the unionist clergy and the emperor as heretical and excommunicated. The emperor responded with force, but force is no way to bring about the union of churches. And so we'll hear more about this later, but the union was not going well. Before we conclude the Second Council of Lyon, we have to mention one more big occurrence, which is the death of St. Bonaventure, the cardinal and superior of the Franciscan order. He died on July 15th while, the, while at the council, and his funeral was celebrated by Pope Gregory at the council itself. Everyone was terribly sad. They recognized the holiness of the great saint and the loss his death was to the council and to the church as a whole. But St. Bonaventure did help the council in providing for prudential regulation of the new mendicant orders, allowing them to keep their promises of poverty, but at the same time helping them to grow within the existing church structure. After the council finished in Lyon, Pope Gregory moved to Switzerland to meet with the newly elected king of Germany, Rudolf of Habsburg. He both supported Rudolf's election, but also got Rudolf to promise to protect traditional papal territories in Italy. Unlike many of his predecessors uh, who didn't keep those promises, Rudolf was not at this time crowned Holy Roman Emperor, and that actually wouldn't happen for Rudolf, but it was a good step, and Rudolf's family, the Habsburgs, are certainly going to be reappearing in our story going forward. After meeting with Rudolf in Switzerland, Pope Gregory was beginning to feel sick, so he started heading home to Rome, intending to meet with Charles of Anjou at, about the crusade and to help bring about the final preparations for it. But by January of 1276, he had made it as far as the northern Italian town of Arezzo, and his sickness was worsening. He died on January 10th, 1276, and his death was really untimely, and it led to many of his projects, including the crusade and the union with the Byzantines falling short of completion. He was recognized as a holy man and was venerated as such in northern Italy after his death. Now, before I conclude, I need to take this opportunity to thank one of my chief sources over the past hundred years, <laughs> sorry, over the past hundred or so episodes, the great church historian Horace Mann. Horace Mann's 16-volume Lives of the Medieval Popes has just been an invaluable source for me as I prepare the text for each of these episodes. Now, he's a little hagiographical, like he, he always tries to look at the best uh, side of the Pope and try to kind of cover up or, or, or limit the Pope's faults. Uh, but despite that, his scholarship's been really great. He has great sources, and he's been one of my two main sources for each of these episodes. And unfortunately, his series ends here with Blessed Gregory X. Gregory X was buried in the Cathedral of St. Donatus in Arezzo, where he died. He was beatified in 1713 by Pope Clement XI, and he was succeeded in the papacy by Blessed Innocent V. But we will talk about him next week. 
Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you and God bless you.